Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome to Scran, the podcast passionate about the Scottish food and drink scene. I'm your host, Rosalind Erskine, and this week we're revisiting a topic close to our hearts, Scottish gin. Making gin, selling gin, promoting gin, writing out gin, and well, drinking gin. We've got it all this week. But we're also asking if gin's time has come. Are we past the peak and is gin's time in the sun drawing to a close? First up is Sean Murphy, whiskey and gin expert and author of two books on Scottish gin. Sean has been researching the very best in Scottish gin particularly and he talks to me about why he thinks the industry has flourished in recent years. To me it seems really incredible that people would want the bubble to burst, you know, it's a really exciting time just now for a lot of smaller producers to come forward and produce these really fantastic gin spirits. Next up is Jamie Shields from Summerhall Drinks Lab in Edinburgh. Jamie just so happens to host the Talk Gin podcast with Sean. I caught up with him all about the wonderful and sometimes weird things he gets up to with alcohol and we discuss whether rum may now be the new gin. What is nice is that we are seeing through our events and whatnot more people interested in trying new things and, and these incredible rums and what's great and I was, I was at a rum tasting not long ago and, and listening to someone talk about rum and he just talked about the different cultures involved in, in rum and, and we don't see any of that and it's just the kind of product on the shelf. Finally on this week's episode I spoke to Natalie Martin-Reed of the Gin Cooperative to get their take on how the Scottish gin industry is doing, where it might be headed and how their new awards offer a unique insight into the quality of Scottish gin. We felt like we really were offering something quite different and it would not only provide, you know, maybe a, a more real world set of results, but also you know, some really fantastic feedback for the producers. First up is Sean Murphy, author of the Scottish Gin Bible. Today I'm joined by Sean Murphy, who is the author of now two Scottish gin books. Hi Sean, how are you? I'm good, very good. Can you hear me okay? Everything loud and clear? Yep, it's good. We're chatting today because it's the publication day of your second book, which is the Scottish Gin Bible. So what can you tell us about that? So essentially, I originally wrote the Gin Galore book, uh, which had 50 Scottish producers and the publisher came back. And there's obviously been quite a lot going on in the Scottish gin scene, which is a great thing. Obviously, it's been doing really well and expanding at a rate of knots. So my publisher asked if it'd be possible for me to expand on what we'd already done together, which meant adding incredibly 50 new gins. So I remember when I first did the book, I was struggling to get to 50. So I think I ended up with like 49 in the end up. But with this new book, I was actually, I had 100, could have pushed maybe another 10, 15. So it's a really great sign that even though we've been struck by the pandemic, Brexit's been causing a lot of problems for producers, that actually the Scottish gin scene still seems to be thriving and hopefully long may that continue. What is it about the Scottish gin scene specifically that you think is makes it so sort of buoyant just now one of the things i always say that along with distilling heritage scotland 
and Scottish people tend to be really great storytellers. And I think what really translates in that is that each Scottish gin has a real sense of provenance. Uh, there's a real, you know, it's a, it's a real craft industry. I know some of them are quite big now, but a lot of the producers are people who have genuine passion for gin and just, you know, might have started in a croft in the Highlands or even in a shed in Glasgow. So many people coming into the scene who have access to it and it's such an accessible spirit not just to make but also to drink and I think not being bogged down by too many rules allows people to really enjoy it more it's very open in the sense that it's you know it's for everyone and I think particularly in the Scottish scene we have a lot of really great producers coming through we have a lot of really passionate people which is the most important thing and I think that that really translates not just in what they are making but also in how they sell it and I think that really helps push the category forward. And so, you know, there's a lot of chat and there has been a lot of chat over the last couple of years of like, you know, has the bubble burst? When will the bubble burst? What will happen? Do you kind of see it slowing down anytime soon? Well, okay. For me, I'm not a big fan of the old bubble burst uh, <laughs> argument. It's the same with whiskey, you know, it's a lot of people are desperate. For, I don't know, is that a thing that we like Scots love to see? You know, maybe things not fail, but, you know, brought back down to earth a little bit when we rethink we're ahead of them. But to me, it seems really incredible that people would want the bubble to burst. You know, it's a really exciting time just now for a lot of smaller producers to come forward and produce these really fantastic gin spirits. I do believe that it will. It has to slow down. I just think that the phenomenal growth rate recently it is inevitable that that will reduce slightly. I can't imagine that we can sustain it going forward. What I see in small Scottish gin producers is that they understand organic growth and they're not desperately trying to be the next big thing. They just want to create a ready amount of gin for their customer base. You know, that doesn't have to be a customer base that's and it's, you know, hundreds of thousands. It could just be a customer base that's a thousand, two thousand, three thousand people for them as long as it's a sustainable business that they'll keep going and that's that's quite exciting and what you have with Scottish gin is a real connection to the place the people who make it and and where it's made is really important and I think that really shows to answer your question yes it definitely will slow down we might even see a few bigger companies coming in and buying some of these smaller producers but I do believe that it still has a lot of room to grow and I really hope that the success we've seen so far continues. And you mentioned like the people in the place and the stories and stuff. Do you do you think that things like craft and push tourism to Scotland? Yeah, I definitely think it's a big thing. I think if you look at, I mean, a really perfect example is Isle Harris Distillery. They originally set up to be a whiskey distillery and serendipity, I would say, maybe not uh, an accident. I think serendipity, I think, you know, they created this gin, which they hoped to be a a tourist product for them to take home and remind them of the island and it's absolutely exploded and, and rightly so because I think what happened is that people understand that sense of connection and it's something that they can own as well if you go to these islands or these locations and you come across these incredible gins they just remind you of that time that you spent there so I think it really does play to the strengths. And so you mentioned like obviously the pandemic and we know kind of what's happened there in terms of you know the lockdowns and things um is it did anyone speak to you about how brexit's impacted them has it got to do with staff or you know sending things out through being involved with the podcast talk gin with james sutherland i have a lot of contacts in the industry and, and just through talking to them now and seeing some of the challenges they're facing i think the big problem with brexit seems to be supply whether that be being able to source glass for bottles or spirit or 
botanicals. I think there's there's definitely been a sharp rise in sort of questions and queries around supply and logistics issues. So for me personally, I don't really like the idea of making the world smaller. I like the world to be as connected as possible. So I really hope that going forward, even though we have Brexit, I really hope going forward we can build a new relationship with Europe again and, and hopefully we can start solving these supply issues and especially things like, you know, um, having summer staff, you know, it's such a small thing, but a lot of these small distilleries and cafes that they have in, in their, their buildings and tourism centres, you know, they rely on these summer workers and we maybe just won't get as many of them this year. And I think that could be a big problem as well. From your first book, which you say you struggled to get 50 and you've now were inundated, what would you say is like the biggest change over those years? Is it is it the sheer amount of people making gin? Is it the type of gin? Is it the way people are consuming it in terms of cocktails? What what would you say? I think it's the vibrancy. I think originally, you know, it was exciting. And I think for the first book, it was still very much a fledgling industry. And I think there was a lot of discussions around provenance, you know, certain aspects of gin spirit obviously being produced down south and, and brought up here. And there was a lot of arguments around what constituted a Scottish gin. But I think now there is a greater certainty about what they what it takes to be a Scottish gin. And I think people are much more excited about going forward with that. So you're seeing a lot more gins that were previously maybe made either contract distilled in England or contract distilled in some of the bigger cities like Glasgow or um, Edinburgh. You know, there's a lot more confidence now. I think smaller producers are much more confident in being able to produce their own spirit. I think as well that there's there's been a real shift in the consumer understanding of what Scottish gin is. And I think when you get into bars now, you know, you're seeing Scottish gin a lot more and it's becoming much more prevalent. And Bars and restaurants are becoming much more proud of the idea of having Scottish gins on their gantry, um, which can only benefit the the industry as a whole. So I think the on-trade being more connected to these producers and the ease of access to those on-trade customers and also being able to, you know, contact people through the internet and social media has definitely been a big, big help. And I think that that you're really seeing that now. I think that connectivity to your customers is really important. And I think that confidence is coming through and, you know, having cocktail Fridays or hold, hosting tastings online or, you know, sending out packs to people. I think there seems to be a real growth and a better understanding of what the customer wants, um, a better understanding of what makes a good gin, a better understanding of how the botanicals work and also having those people out there that can help you make great gin is, is definitely there as well. So there's been a real diversification as well, you know, like a lot more fruit gins, which are full strength and you're getting a lot more pink gin because that's what the customers really like. And I think that that's changing the producers' beliefs and what they can make and, and really helping them to diversify as well. So people are seeing it being a success now and they really want to take a piece of the apple and I think that can only be a good thing as well going forward. One of the things that has kind of happened over the last few years as well is celebrities and spirits or wines, whether it's like Gary Barlow with his wine or I don't know, I don't know if you featured Katrina Balfe's gin in your book, but she she released a gin, Ryan Reynolds, he sold his aviation gin to Diageo for a crazy amount. What are your thoughts on that? 
celebrities and drinks. I'm all for it, providing they go into it for the right reasons. And I think Katrina Balfi is a really great example. She's helping to create this gin that uh, a lot of the, the profits are going to go to arts charities to help arts and theatre and things like that really struggled during the pandemic. And I think that uh, what she's doing is the, the money that goes from many of the batches of the gin that she's making, which is in the book, um, I will hasten to add, uh, will go to these charities. So I think if they're in it for the right reason and they're helping a producer make a great gin, then yeah, I'm, I'm definitely all for it. I think anything that brings attention to the category can only be a good thing so long as it's obviously not negative attention but so far it's all been positive which is good nice is there any sort of standout producer for you in the last five years that you think wow they're what they're doing is amazing and they're really capsulating like the spirit of Scottish gin or is there too many (laughs) I was going to say you're asking me to pick favourites here and that's uh, (laughs) I I, I, I can't I can't do that what I will say is um, I've been blown away by being able to revisit the scene and really see how uh, certain gins have progressed. I do want to name some, but I won't do that because I feel like they're, they're just, every single gin in that book, you know, they all have an amazing story, which is the real reason that I wrote the book was to tell their story. And they all have amazing gins. And I think that what's really, I know we've called it the gin Bible, but realistically, uh, it's not a set of laws. It's more, uh, we really want you to read the book and be able to explore gins and find your next favourite gin. You know, I think when you see it in there, we've got gins from the borders right up to the Shetlands. Um, we cover every pretty much every corner of the country. And I think what is, what's really exciting about that is no matter what your taste is, you'll find a gin hopefully in there for you. And also you'll find a cocktail to go with it that, um, and also a recommended serve not a perfect serve because you don't believe in perfect serves it's all about what the gin makers think will get the best result from their gin the exciting thing about it is there's definitely 100 great gins so um, I'm sorry I, I'd love to pick favourites and I do have a few favourites but I, I would feel bad about it if I, I picked them over some of the other ones in the book I was going to ask about the cocktails because you had cocktails in your last book and a, a lot of people that maybe don't think maybe think they don't like gin or know that they don't like gin it's usually the tonic isn't it yeah I was going to say I mean that's one of the things that we approach in the book we're really trying to open up people's ideas to try and things like trying gin neat even before they drink a gin and tonic just to actually get a bit of flavour for what the gin should taste like understanding what juniper is how juniper affects flavour and the other side of that is that you know you don't have to always drink gin and tonic that's not a thing you know it's just they do make a good partnership but why not try it with soda water or gin and lemonade or you know gin and bitter lemon or gin and ginger ale there's there's, there's so many mixer combinations in there and and also there's great Scottish producers like Cushy Do's who do their own brand of tonic water that maybe don't have quinine in them which is something that a lot of people don't like is that quinine flavour the medicinal kind of uh, flavour that comes from that so even if you don't like gin there'll definitely be something in the book that you do like whether that be a cocktail or a mixer combination. If you could only take three Scottish gins to a desert island, what would they be and why? See, this is going back to the favourite uh, <laughs> thing again. So you're just trying to catch me out here. It'll, it'll depend on the, the day as well. It's quite a sunny day. So maybe you're going to think, I don't know, somebody wins. Yeah, I mean, like, uh, this is hard because obviously there are so many that I've tried recently that I've sort of fallen in love with and I'm a, I'm a huge, huge fan of. So if I was to pick just stringently one gin, I don't I think if I pick three, I might be, again, three out of the hundred might be a bit too much. But one of the ones that I've always loved and always go back to is definitely NB gin, North Berwick gin. Big fan. It's just very juniper-led and it's a very classic style. Macintosh do a really amazing uh, pineapple, Old Tom, which 
would be perfect for a, a desert island. So I'll give you those two. Um, and I know they sit in my brain for the third, but I think we'll go with two and we'll go with those two. Yeah, we'll look out for your book. You can get the book from Amazon and should be in all good book retailers. And feel free to get in touch with me uh, on Twitter uh, at Distillation, not Distillation, but with Sean at the end instead of T-I-O-N, because obviously I'm really good at wordplay. And yeah, if you have any questions, if there's anything about the book you want to to ask me or just get in touch yeah and if you're a new Scottish gym producer out there and you know you want to get in touch yeah please do as well I can't believe I've known you for this long and I've only just realised that I call you distiller shot and it's distillation I've only just realised that <laughs> on Twitter that's okay. brilliant I mean, that's obviously me probably trying to be too clever that's um, not, not, not no not, it's uh, probably it's probably me. not transferred across that well but <laughs> Oh yeah, you might end up making your own gin at some point. <laughs> yeah, it's exciting. I think that would be quite exciting. I think it'd be quite a good thing to do. Uh, I, I would obviously always be up for that. I think there are so many people out there, especially the hundred people in my book, that do it so much better than I would. So maybe, who knows? I'll never say no. Well, on that note, watch the space. But on that note, thanks very much. And yeah, we'll look out for your book. And uh, congratulations on publication day. Well, thank you very much. Thank you very much for having me on again. Thanks very much. Thank you. Who knew there were just so many Scottish gins out there now? Sean's book will no doubt be on many gin fans' stocking filler list this Christmas. Next up, I spoke to Jamie about Summerhall Drinks Lab, the Juniper Festival and the gin cruises they are offering in Edinburgh. I'm joined by Jamie Shields from Summerhall Drinks Lab. Hi Jamie, how are you? I'm very good, Rose, yes. Thank you for, uh, for inviting me along. That's all right. Um, so just to kind of kick off, can you just tell us a little bit about what it is you do? Yes, indeed. So I uh, run a business called the Summerhall Drinks Lab here in Edinburgh. And this is where we run lots of different fun tasting events with all manner of different drinks. We've got our own dedicated training and tasting room where we invite folks in and it's kind of small, intimate, interactive tasting events where uh, we might pair rum with donuts or gin and chocolate and, and have a little bit of fun and experiment with different activities and, and different ways of enjoying spirits. So we started that a few years ago and we do a variety of other things as well as that, things like our gin cruises where we take folks up and down the canal here in Edinburgh uh, and we've got Juniper Festival. And how did you get into that? Like, what's your background? I call myself a, a failed science teacher in that I went to uni after school and, and always kind of planned on being, or I kind of wanted to get into physics and engineering, but I kind of quickly realized that that wasn't really for me. And throughout my kind of attempts at university and traveling and whatnot, I was always working in and around hospitality. I worked at a cocktail bar in Glasgow and I loved it and just started learning more about cocktails and drinks and spirits and, and from there I moved into uh, training I would teach bartenders how to work in bars and then on to events and hosting whiskey tastings and wine tastings and, and then eventually moved to Edinburgh from Glasgow I worked in more in events and then started my own business four years ago and with that we've kind of I've kept the thread of this love of science and experimentation and now teach people about the science of booze so although I said a failed science teacher I think in some ways I've managed to achieve my uh, original goal, but not quite in the same ways that I anticipated when I was 18. It's talked about quite a lot, like the Scottish gin boom is a bit crazy and it's been going on for a while. Uh, and is it coming to an end? And, you know, what's the future? What are your thoughts on all of that? Like, how, how do you sort of feel that it started out and how do you feel it's going? Yeah, well, I mean, I think it's been coming to an end for about four years now. Certainly it won't 
end or that this bubble won't burst as, as oft been predicted. But I think obviously what we're seeing a hell of a lot more challenges now than we ever have done. Those barriers to entry are, are even greater now with post-Brexit and obviously the pandemic the last couple of years and then now cost of living crisis is, is make, make it a lot more difficult for these smaller producers. And obviously we've seen in the last couple of years that massive number of new distilleries and new gin producers being opened up has slowed down considerably. And that's obviously not surprising. However, but saying that, we are still seeing new producers and, and not just that, the producers that are existing, diversifying and, and maybe trying new things and, and experimenting and releasing new flavours and expressions. So we're still seeing a lot of growth, perhaps not in the same way as we did, but we're still seeing some wonderful things coming out of the Scottish gin industry and, and, and that's not going to change. I mean, we're, what remains to be seen is how that, you know, a couple of years down the line, how everything that's affecting us now is, is going to affect, you know, some of the smaller producers perhaps. We're now back to running these wonderful gin events where people can, and that's been really, has one thing that's been missing in the last couple of years is, you know, some of these producers are not able to give consumers the chance to try their products and, and now that we're you know with the juniper festival and other wonderful gin events that we've got going on you know these producers get the chance to try or, or, or let folks try their gins and i think that will be a massive positive uh, and and some of these gin brands will really start to grow because of that and was it the real sort of boost in um, popularity of gin that led you to launch juniper or was it something you always kind of wanted to do anyway uh, just to clarify, actually, so I took over the running of Juniper Festival in 2019. So Juniper Festival was created by my old boss, Martin Duffy, uh, back in 2014. And it was the first of its kind, the first Scottish gin festival. Uh, and it was certainly his love, uh, back then I was still back in Glasgow, uh, it was his love of, of gin and Scottish gin that, that led him to create the festival, certainly. And it was born out of that and right at the start, really, of that big Scottish gin boom. 2013, 2014, around the same time as Pickering's, who are our neighbours, so, you know, the, the festival is in Summer Hall, as is Pickering's Gin. So it was around about the same time that, that this event was was conceived and, and started. And certainly, and I've been involved in it since 2016 in various different capacities, and, and it's and I took over the, the running of it in 2019, and certainly I've continued that that love of of Scottish products and gin and, and the wonderful creativity and, and wonderful people as well that we have in this country and, and involved in the industry, which is the, the greatest thing. It's not just about, you know, tasty, tasty liquids. It's about the, the great people that make it and get the chance to kind of hang out for a couple of days with them and uh, share their stories and, and with myself as well as the consumers. Uh, so certainly that, that love of, of Scottish gin is, is not wavered in, in, since we started back in 2014. And then it was quite a challenge, obviously, with the pandemic. So you took, you took over running in 2019, just before everything kicked off. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, but you went virtual, didn't you? Yeah, so back at, so 2019, we're, we had, of course, it was pre-pandemic, so we had my first uh, Juniper Festival as its main organiser. And then it was, of course, the, the following year that the pandemic hit. So, yeah, it was originally, it's always in June of the year. So in June of 2020, we obviously had to cancel that. And we did, yeah, we, we had a little uh, virtual festival. And really, you know, just as folks were, were getting into doing virtual events and, and, and experimenting with different things. So I borrowed a, a 360 camera, and took some some kind of panoramic shots of the venue of the inside of the empty venue and then very crudely photoshopped pictures of exhibitors onto this 360 image of the of summer hall so that people could kind of not just look watch videos or see pictures but they could kind of almost walk around the festival 
and they could click on and, and watch videos or read uh, some content from the producers. And they sent out little uh, packs of, of gin samples to guests as well. So that was a kind of fun and, and like a lot of things kind of born out of necessity. Do you think that the location of where you are is quite key to what you do? Do you think something that you do could have worked in Glasgow or do you think you need to be somewhere as like historical as where you are in terms of Summerhall and, and Edinburgh for the tourism? Yeah, it's an interesting one. And because and what we do is, is quite unique around the country. There aren't very many of our kind of businesses. A lot of the, the, the kind of things that we do are often attached to a shop or a bar. So these places might host gin tastings or events, uh, but they are kind of another string to their bow as opposed to us as our core business. We've often thought about, you know, going back to Glasgow and how that might come about. And I think, you know, coming to Edinburgh, and when I moved to Edinburgh, it was about six years ago, it was certainly noticeable that the scene was very different here than in Glasgow. You know, Glasgow's often you know, seen as, as a really fun party city, which it is, and it's, I always like going back home. But I think perhaps there is a little bit more interest in doing these kind of experiences as opposed to maybe in Glasgow. I think where we are within Summer Hall, there's just this kind of perfect storm of, of all these different components. So being next to a gin distillery, uh, you know, not that we are attached in any way to Pickering's. You know, we've got Edinburgh Ice Company next door to us. We've got Barney's Beer. So there's this lovely little community, this little hub of, of like-minded folks, as well as this kind of amazing community within Summer Hall. So it's quite artistic and, and creative. And I'm able to harness all these different components and being in a great location uh, just outside the city centre with good links and next to the meadows. And it's a wonderful little place to be. And, it's, and you know, you can see that during the fringe uh, where it is quite a popular little venue. So I think all these different components, and I think even if I was to take this concept outside of Summer Hall, it might not work as well as it does here. You know, never mind going to another city. So, but uh, you know, we're quite happy sticking here in, in Summer Hall and with the community that we've got around us. And can you tell us a bit about the gin cruises? Because I recently saw a barge for sale in Glasgow and thought that's such a good idea that you do that. Somebody should do it in Glasgow. <laughs> but yeah, how did all that come about? Not that I'm trying to nick your business. But <laughs> <laughs> the gin cruises, and, and again, shout out to, to Martin Duffy, is that he created those back in maybe 2015, I think, the year after uh, the first start of Juniper Festival. And I was brought on very quickly as, as the gin host. So I was involved right from the start and, and kind of growing that, that those gin cruises. And Martin at the time, his friend was, was involved in the, the company. There's a social enterprise that owned the boat that we rent from. They came to agreement to, to use that boat for, for gin cruises. And, you know, for the last six, seven years, I've been involved in them, uh, running these gin cruises where we take folks up and down the Union Canal for a couple of hours and give them lots of gin. And again, a focus on Scottish gin more so than anything else and, and about kind of educating your guests about the different styles and different ways of enjoying that. And it is just such a, a unique and fun little activity. You know, very slowly, I should point out, very slowly, just in case anyone is worried about seasickness. We go about, I think it's about three miles an hour, and our wonderful host, Neil, he is wonderful and so enthusiastic and, and really gets people uh, involved in the whole experience and, and makes it a really enjoyable couple of hours on the boat. The last few months, we've had a new gin book from Sean Murphy and Natalie um, and Martin at the Gin Cooperative have launched new gin awards. So there still seems to be quite a lot of interest in kind of things going on within gin, but what do you think the future looks like? Do you think, you know, there's been a lot of experimentation and different flavours and all the rest of it. Do you think juniper predominance is going to come back in or do you think people will just keep experimenting or something else? 
Yeah, I think both we might find that we're going to those extremes. It's kind of diverting from the centre. And you're, you're right in saying that there's still plenty of interest in, you know, folks like Sean uh, bringing out his second book uh, and, and doing very well. And, you know, now at the second set of, of Gen Awards, we're seeing and, and what you can notice when you look at Gen Awards, you see the different categories there and, and how the number of categories have increased from year to year. And we're being more specific about what we are awarding now. So I think it just shows the diversity that we've got within Scottish Gin. But we'll still see, you know, weird and wonderful expressions and, and uh, different flavour things. So part of the podcast is Desert Island Drinks. Um, if you could only take three drinks onto a desert island, what would they be and why? My drink of choice now, which is tequila and tonic. Tequila and tonic is, is, my, is my new drink. And it, it kind of has been for the last couple of years. But I'm presuming this is a, a, a tropical island. Yeah. Okay, cool. So uh, so we, we might be able to make some some moonshine from what we've got on the on the island there. I'm going to hark back to my, my upbringing on the West Coast uh, would be Buckfast. Just because, you know, it, there's, there's a lot of redeeming qualities. If we're stuck on, a, on a, an island, there's some, a lot of caffeine in there, some sugar. And it was a remarkably good cocktail ingredient. I know we kind of, it's a bit heavily derided and, and we, we laugh about it, but it is a pretty delicious ingredient if it's treated right. Wait, I think I'm maybe actually making a, a Buckfast Negroni. I think that's what I'm doing here. Okay, yep, that's what we're going to do. Buckfast Negroni, tequila and tonic, and then some some good red wine, I think is where we're going to go next. What is next? We've actually just launched our, our new rum cruises. So we do a lot of uh, rum tastings at the drinks lab, so our rum and donuts is a particular favourite where we pair different rums with some local uh, donuts, and we thought it would be a great idea to, to bring that onto the boat. The gin cruises have been exceptionally popular. Again, a kind of similar format where folks will get the chance to try these wonderful rums, led by Neil, uh, and we'll pair some of them with, uh, with a donut that's made just across the road from us here in Summerhall. So that's a good thing to look out for. Is rum the new gin, which is what everyone said for a while? Uh, yeah, I think rum has always kind of been touted as the next big thing. And it's never quite came to that and, and it never will because, you know, we don't have that same connection with, with rum as, as we do with, with gin. You know, A, we don't make a lot of it, although in saying that we have, of course, in the last few years seen more rum producers in uh, Scotland and some making some really fantastic products. You know, likes of North Coast Distillers, North Point Pilot Rum, making some some brilliant stuff here and, and you know, from... Yeah, of course, the molasses is imported, but you're making it from scratch. So while it will never be the next, it will never be as big as gin, you know, what's great to see is that we are experimenting with, with homegrown stuff. And I think the problem is with rum and, and that differentiates it from gin is that we have a little bit of a different relationship with it. We're maybe not, maybe not exposed to as much of it. Uh, and we are, the, generally speaking, most folks drink rum with a heavily flavoured mixer or, or, or they'll have... It's maybe seen as a kind of cheaper product and we don't have that same premiumization within supermarkets. Like say, next time you go to a supermarket, you see the different rums on offer compared to the different gins and it is night and day. But what is nice is that we are seeing through our events and whatnot, more people interested in trying new things and, and these incredible rums. And what's great, and I was, I was at a rum tasting not long ago and, and listening to someone talk about rum and he just talked about the different cultures involved in, in rum and, and we don't see any of that. And it's just the kind of product on the shelf and... I think what's, what's wonderful about gin is that all the different stories about the producers. And I think if more people learned about the amazing story and culture and, and uh, 
and how integral that is to the people that make it, I think more people will be interested in trying these different products and, and hopefully we'll get to that point. We'll, we'll, we'll wait and see. Nice. Well, thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Rose. Cheers. My final stop on my Scottish gin journey for this episode was to sit down with Natalie and Martin Reid, founders of the Gin Cooperative, to talk about their new awards. Today I'm joined by Natalie and Martin of the Gin Cooperative. Hi guys, how are you? Good morning, Rose. How's it going? We're fine, I think. Yeah, yeah, just all good. How are you? Yeah, good. Thanks. Yeah. So for anyone that hasn't listened to the podcast that I did with you guys before, could you tell us a little bit about the Gin Cooperative, like how it came to be and what it is you guys do? Well, we're a, we're a business that supports and I guess you could say showcases Scottish gin. It was established in 2017 by my wife, Natalie. And over the last sort of five years, I've become more involved in the business and we started off as gin drinkers. We wanted to create a resource for consumers and industry to discover Scottish gin. We went about developing a website and over the last five years, we've worked closely with a number of different gin brands of all sizes to just just try and raise a profile of Scottish gin in general, you know, just to try and position it as a premium spirit made in Scotland that should be at the top of the list for people to go and check out first, you know. I guess you could say that we've also added uh, various things to the gin cooperative over over time. So we started out um, effectively as a membership-based business, but there as a resource to promote and and showcase Scottish gin, as Martin said. But, you know, since then, we've gone on to um, launch International Scottish Gin Day, which is very much about trying to put the profile of Scottish gin to a more global audience. You know, so it just puts that... You know, I think days in the drinks calendar are becoming more common and popular. You know, you're a way to have Edinburgh Cocktail Week and, you know, and then you get things like World Gin Day. And so we felt like it would really put Scottish gin in the spotlight. And we've obviously added an e-commerce shop to the website as well. So now, you know, not only can you learn about the, the Scottish gin products, but you can buy them from us. And we obviously take pride in working directly with Scotland's gin makers with that as well. And then more recently launched the awards. Yeah, so yeah, that takes me on to my next question. So your awards, can you tell us a bit about that and, and how you kind of came to think, let's do gin awards? I guess we just thought, you know, because we're not busy enough running basically three separate businesses why not create a, <laughs> create a separate uh, a separate thing but on, on a serious note I mean obviously working in the, the Scottish gin industry and I guess you could say that the wider spirits industry you know you do get feedback you do have conversations with people about different elements and you know one of the things that kept coming up was awards there's a number of really fantastic awards programs out there so there's obviously the Scottish gin awards which is always a highlight in our year as a not only a you know seeing Scotland's gin makers are awarded for their hard work, but also as a, an event where you can get together. The Gin Guide have got a fantastic set of awards, but we just felt, certainly for us as gin drinkers and being in this industry, there was an opportunity to maybe do an awards with a difference where the spirits were being assessed and scored neat, being scored and assessed as a gin and tonic, because at the end of the day, the vast majority of gin, I would hazard a guess, people enjoy as a gin and tonic. And also a score for packaging, which, you know, at the end of the day, consumers buy with their eyes. And we went about it. We carefully picked a, a judging panel. Obviously, you were you were a judge in that panel, along with a number of other people. You know, we had Max Hayward from Lab 22 in Cardiff. It's a really well-known 
cocktail bar. It did some really cool concept cocktails. He had Adele Corn, who is a, a, a gin blogger from Edinburgh. She runs Tart and Spoon blog. We also had Sam Hewen, a Scottish actor from obviously probably most well-known for Outlander, but also he's got his Sassanac whiskeys, his, his tequila. So in terms of the judging panel, it was 63 judges across seven judging groups and each spirit was assessed by nine judges. Each entry was assessed by nine judges. So that was three community, three industry and three consumer and you know, we felt that was a good balance because, you know, at the end of the day, gin is in hospitality businesses and on and off trade. So that takes care of the industry. The community judges, people who write about spirits, people who perhaps have a passion for it. And obviously consumers are the biggest part of probably gin success uh, over the last year. So, yeah, assessing the spirit differently, a well-balanced judging panel. And, and we, we, we took it from there, did we? Yeah, we just felt like that offered something it's, it's so difficult to use the word unique because it just it feels like it does get banded about more. But we felt like we really were offering something quite different. And it would not only provide, you know, maybe a, a more real world set of results, but also you know, some really fantastic feedback for the producers. You know, so, so they'll, we're just in the process of sending that out to all the entrants right now. We got some amazing scores and amazing feedback from the judges. So hopefully, not just for the winners, but everyone that took part, that, that really adds value for them as well. And did any part of it surprise you, either, you know, the, the types of people applying for entry or, or like the, the feedback or who won? Like, was there any sort of moment where you thought, oh, I wasn't expecting that? The thing is, when, you, when you're kind of in the moment and you, you've got, you know, 63 judges, I mean, each each entry had 11 elements that were assessed. So for gin neat, there was appearance, nose, palate, finish. The same with the gin and tonic element. There's also a judge's score. And then there was two separate elements for packaging. So I think when you're getting all this, all this feedback in, you can't really process it until you've got the entire scoring for an entry. And then you're sitting working through it and you think, well... They've, they've really seen something special in this gin or, you know, to be fair, they, they've maybe assessed a gin in a way that, you know, it maybe it maybe raises a few eyebrows, but I think that's, that's the whole point of having nine judges assessing a product is it's not just one judge giving their opinion. Having nine judges give a good overall balanced score for each of the entries. And I think the thing that I really loved about it was when we were pulling together the final scores, was the fact that there was such diversity in the types of producers and brands that were that, that came out as winning awards. So, you know, sometimes with these, with, with awards programmes, there can be cynicism around, well, it's just the big guys that win everything because they've got money to throw at it. But it's certainly, a, it was really nice to see some of these really small producers being recognised for producing really, really good liquid. And I think another thing was the fact that neither myself or Natalie took part in the judging. So there's no influence from us there. Uh, there was no Scottish distillers or brand owners invited to be judges. So there was no one directly, what would you say, producing a Scottish gin, also assessing other people's gins. I think overall it was a really good project to do. I think it's been really beneficial for us. For, you know, For next year, there'll be things that we can improve upon. 
and and hopefully next year we'll get we'll, we'll get another great bunch of entries as well so i would say as well just to add to your point specifically about surprises because i was thinking about that there and i mean it's difficult to say i wouldn't say the word we were surprised by anything I guess you could say maybe pleasantly surprised in that there were gins that won that we rate but aren't actually that well known across the Scottish gin sector or maybe out with maybe their local region. Now, we all know that that's kind of happened in Scotland where almost every region boasts, you know, a handful of Scottish gin brands now. And so some don't have big budgets to move outside their area. And so it was fantastic, as Martin said, to see a real mix of small and large producers. Mm-hmm. And, and I think as well, Rose, I think it's just a brilliant showcase for the the, the, the diversity across the Scottish gin category. There's no two gin makers are the same. There's no two brands are the same. It really is a you know a fantastic spirits category for people to go and discover and explore. Yeah. Natalie, you mentioned like most of the regions have got a handful of Scottish gin producers, and we've talked about over the years. You know, gin is a big thing. Has it peaked? What's going on with it? And with the, you know, the fact that McQueen's gin sadly is no longer in the secret herb um, garden and distillery has been sold, do you think that we've reached peak Scottish gin now? Obviously, we have a lot of insight and I still find it difficult to answer that question. Given the economic climate, I mean, things could improve in five, ten years from now. But right now, I would say things will definitely stabilise. I'm not saying it will go downhill, but I do think we'll see a lot less of the growth and more of a steady state. You know, for, for most of the gin makers as well, you know, when you look at the volumes of brands, you know, a couple of hundred probably in Scotland now, most gin makers actually do it still on the side you know they have a day job and that is you know it's more than a hobby it is a business and it is a brand but at the end of the day you know for a lot it's not necessarily make or break we're definitely seeing brands falling away there's no doubt so I do think when you say peak I think we have seen peak gin and I think there's no doubt that the the market is saturated I think what what excites us is you'll see the brands that are more established that um, have invested money in the quality of their products and in their brand, you know, they'll expand their portfolios, they'll offer the consumer more choice, and we'll see them grow. There is a cost of living crisis right now. I mean, there's no getting away from that. So I think consumers maybe will turn to cheaper supermarket branded brand gins. But like Natalie said, I think I think the, the, the Scottish gin makers that have invested in their brand Perhaps the ones that have got an experience of some kind or an attraction where people can come along, buy into the brand, they can maybe make their own gin, they can meet the people actually making it. There will be a certain period of time over the next 18 months, 24 months, where some gin makers maybe or spirit producers will assess, do we have a commercially viable business? But I think it will also provide an awful lot of opportunity for businesses to reassess where do we need to be focusing our time and energy how can we get our message out there? How can we make sure people are discovering our brand? And yes, sadly, there might be other brands go under it, but you know, I, I think it'll provide that window of opportunity, a bit like COVID, where people had to reassess, right, we don't have an e-commerce store, we better get something online because that's going to be the easiest way for consumers to buy gin. I think it will give the industry a chance to maybe take a step back and assess what their priorities are. Mm-hmm. But I think Scottish gin in particular has got a very long, prosperous shelf life ahead of it especially with a lot of the big whiskey brands releasing gins investing in gin distilleries 
I think a lot of these big guys don't get involved in an industry if they're if it's not got a long life ahead of it. You know, they don't get investment, they don't get the backing from their shareholders to do these things. If there's not a, a strong business case for, yeah, Scottish Gin is here to stay. Hopefully it's about that quality and that experience and less about the volume. I think that's what we've seen a lot over the last few years. And there's an exciting future, as Martin says, ahead. But it's maybe just in a slightly different different way. And I think that can be really a, a good thing for the industry, for sure. So you've mentioned International Scottish Gin Day. I know that's coming up soon. So what's what's on the cards? Yeah, I mean, we have set the date aside. It's always the first Saturday in October, October yeah. annually. And so the idea is it is there for consumers and for trade to do as they would like. So use it to their advantage, if you like. And the producers, of course. So, you know, whether you showcase a particular brand, whether you make some cocktails, whether there's a bar that might want to collaborate with a brand, invite them in for a you know, a mixology session or you're a, a physical shop front or an online shop and you want to do a discount that promotes your Scottish gin products or you're a producer, you might put on a few extra tours that weekend or if you're the consumer, you might just simply, you know, shake something up and pull something or enjoy a Scottish gin, you know. So it really is just about, you know, the, the consumers and the trade making the most of it and, and enjoying the day. The day is there for, for Scotland's gin makers and the Scottish gin industry to use to help them promote their products and, you know, whether it's to generate footfall to their, their gin experiences or, like Natalie said, do an online offer, a discount, free shipping, Whatever, you know, the day is there to be celebrated and used. That was that's why we created it, was it? Exactly. Yeah. Nice. Well, looking forward to that. Any excuse to have a nice Scottish gin? Exactly. <laughs> and uh, thank you guys very much. Yeah, yeah you th- too. thanks very much for your time. Okay. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thanks to Natalie, Martin, Jamie and Sean for being my guests on this episode and thanks to you for listening. Please remember to rate, review and subscribe so you never miss an episode of Scran. Scran is a logical podcast that's co-produced and hosted by me, Rosalind Erskine and co-produced, edited and mixed by Kelly Crichton. Thank you.